Good morning. So I'm going to be doing the scripture reading this morning. So if you would open your phones or your Bibles to the very beginning, I'll be reading Genesis, all of chapter 1, uh, through verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 3. And while you get there, um, Ryan wanted me to just introduce myself real quick. I'm Lauren Shea. My husband is Paul Shea, and we've been coming to Northwest for about six years. Uh, we have a son named Ryan, and he's four. Um, and obviously, I serve on the worship team, and I help out with Northwest Kids as well. So if you could read with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be, the, be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the, the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Thanks, Lauren. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Ryan. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And yeah, like Scott said, we are starting a new series today in the book of Genesis. Don't really need to do the series anymore. Scott already spoiled it. Snake Crushers, Jesus, so everybody can go home. Just kidding. Um, so whenever we start a new series, we kind of ask this question. And, and again, we're calling this series, uh, we're going through Genesis 1 through 11, the first 11 chapters of Genesis between now and, uh, and, and Easter. And whenever we start a new series, this one's called the the uh, is called um, Snake Crusher Wanted, all right? Now, you might be wondering, maybe you get that reference, you know, about the snake and crushing the snake and that type of stuff. Maybe you don't, but we're going we're gonna to kind of gradually build out what that means, what's the snake, who's the snake crusher, how does that all come in? But we always are thinking when we're, we're preaching God's word, what are we hoping that you were going to get out of it? Before we plan a series, it's not just how can we kind of go over some information about the Bible. We're always thinking and praying and asking God to show us, Lord, what do you want to do through your word and the lives of your people through this series? And as we think about what we hope God will do in, in your life and in our lives and in our, as our church as a whole, there's a story that came to mind that I want to share with you real briefly. And uh, so I, I grew up in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and my dad, he really liked to tell me stories, okay? And my dad's a good storyteller, and I really enjoyed, this one of my favorite things to do was listen to him tell me, tell me stories. I mean, I'm not that old, I watch TV too, but I, I enjoyed listening to my dad uh, tell me stories from time to time. <laughs> um, but my favorite stories that my dad told me were stories about his life when he was my age. So when I was eight years old and my dad would tell me a story, I would always ask him, say, Daddy, tell me a story. Tell me what your life was like. Tell me a story about when you were eight years old, when you were my age. And he'd tell me stories. And those are my favorite stories. I remember many of them even, even till today. And then, so the question is, what did I get out of those stories? Why, did I, why were those my favorite stories? What did I like about them so much? And you know, they weren't like, cheesy, nursery rhyme type of real simple moralistic stories where it's like, this guy did something bad, don't do that. It wasn't that type of thing where you just kind of learn 
this is a rule that you should apply. They weren't stories like that. Sometimes there would be things that I could see, oh, yeah, that's, that's a good thing to do. That's a bad thing to do. You know, it wasn't even as if I was going to be encountering the same circumstances that my dad encountered when he was growing up. My dad grew up in North Dakota on a farm. He likes to make stuff with his hands. I grew up in the suburbs of South Carolina, where my dad would always make fun of us when we complained about it being cold, rightfully so. And, uh, and I like to play sports, and I like to read, and, and stuff like that. So my dad and I were very different people, so it wasn't as if our circumstances were the same, and you know, I needed to know how to feed the chickens the way he fed the chickens or something like that. The reason I love those stories too, so much, I think there's two reasons. Number one, because through those stories, I got to know my dad. I got to see who my father is. And yeah, you can say, well, he's six foot one, and he's, you know, 200 whatever pounds, and he's, this is his job, and this is where he's from, but there's something about hearing somebody's stories that really helps you get to know somebody. And the second thing it did, it helped me understand who my dad was, and the second thing it did, it helped me understand the legacy that I was a part of as a member of his family. And so the reason I tell that story is because when we read the book of Genesis, I'm sure most of you have read stories in Genesis before, and many of you might have have read the whole book before. But how are we coming to the book of Genesis? I think sometimes we come to Genesis and we think, okay, God, tell me the rules. Tell me me the rules I should follow. And if you do that, you're going to, there'll be some rules, but there'll be some parts of Genesis where you'll look at it and say, I don't see what the rule is here. And there'll be other parts of Genesis where you're like, I kind of see a rule here, but that's really strange, and I'm not sure if I'm supposed to do that. I feel like probably not. And other times, you know, we might be looking for it, like, okay, well, when I'm in that situation, I'll know what to do. But the problem is, in Genesis, some of these situations, we're never in that exact same situation. And so what I want to encourage you to think about, and what I'm praying for, what I'd ask you to pray along with me for is that as we're in the book of Genesis, that God would do those two things. That number one, he would show us more about who our heavenly father is. That we'd learn who God is. And we'd develop a greater appreciation for the legacy that we're all a part of. Okay? So let's dive in. And today we're going to look at three things that we can see about who God is from from Genesis chapter 1. Sound good? All right, so everybody turn to Genesis chapter 1. Um, so the thing you have to realize, three things we're going to see about God today. We're going to see, first of all, that there is one God. There's one God. Second of all, we're going to see that God is the creator. God is creator. And then third and finally, we're going to see that God is all-powerful. And then lastly, after we look at those things, we're going to look at what our response is. Okay, so first of all, there is one God. What you have to realize about Genesis, so the book of Genesis is written by Moses, and Moses was the leader of God's people, the Israelites, somewhere around 1500 BC, okay? And he had had led God's people, the Israelites, and further on in the book of Genesis, we'll see why they're called the Israelites, but he had led God's people out of Egypt 
where they were slaves, and he was leading them through the desert, and he was taking them to the land of Canaan. And the land of Canaan was what they called the promised land. It was this land that God had promised to give to the Israelites as this beautiful, wonderful home. Now, the thing you have to realize is that as Moses is writing Genesis chapter 1, as he's penning these words, he is aware that there is, and listen to this, there is a culture war that is raging around Genesis 1. There's a culture war raging around Genesis 1. And Moses, in Genesis chapter 1, he's taking a stake and just putting it in the ground and saying in the midst of this culture war, this is where, this is the truth. This is what the truth is. And everything else is, is false. But the tricky thing is, the culture war that Moses is putting a stake on the ground, in the ground in is not the culture war you're probably thinking of right now. Right? Am I right? When you think of, cult, of Genesis chapter 1, what questions come to mind? Old earth, young earth. Is Genesis 1, is creation compatible with evolution? 24, seven literal 24-hour periods, or maybe not seven literal 24-hour periods. Those are the questions that come to our mind when we think about, that's the culture war that we're in. Now, um, I don't wanna, want you to think that I'm kind of trying to dodge that question, but I kind of am, <laughs> um, because you have to realize that the culture war that Moses is speaking into is not that same culture war. And so Genesis does have some important things to say about the age of the earth, about that whole debate, but I think if we focus too much on that, we'll, we'll miss the main point that Moses and that God through Moses is trying to get across to us, because here's the thing that was happening. The Egyptians, where Moses was leading the people out of Egypt, they believed in all sorts of gods. They believed in hundreds and thousands of gods. And the Canaanite people who lived in the land of Canaan, where God was taking his people through Moses, they believed in hundreds and thousands of gods. Okay? And so what God is saying through Moses in Genesis chapter 1 is he's looking at the Israelite people and saying, you guys have, you're coming out of an environment where people worship hundreds and thousands of gods. You're going into an environment where people worship hundreds and thousands of gods. And you have to realize that who these people think God is, the way they see God is the wrong view of God. And you have to learn the truth about God so you don't fall into the same lies and the same errors that the Egyptians did and the Canaanites did. And the, and the most important thing with this, the, the most important thing that would come to their mind is the first point up on the screen, that there is, there's not hundreds and thousands of gods, there's one God. There's not hundreds and thousands of gods, there's one God. How many gods do you see in the Genesis 1 account that Lauren just read. There's one God. This isn't God saying to another God, hey, I'll do this, you do that, I'll take the sky, you know, you take the ocean. There's one God. Later on in Genesis chapter 2, we learn his name, that his name is Yahweh. He is the Lord God. He is Yahweh Elohim. All right, so there's not many, many, many gods. There's there's one God. In the time of Moses, so around 1500 BC, 
the Israelites, there was a prayer that they would pray more than all of the other prayers. This was kind of like their Lord's Prayer, okay? And some of you know it, it's called the Shema, which in Hebrew literally means listen. And it's found in Deuteronomy 6.4, which is also written by Moses, and it says, listen, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And the thing that they were being reminded of over and over and over again is there's not hundreds and thousands of gods, there's one God. The Lord is one, and you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. That's the first thing. There's not hundreds of thousands of gods, there's one God. Second thing we learn is that God is the creator. God is creator. You see, in the Canaanite accounts, which there are many accounts, of the way they viewed the creation of the world. In all of those accounts, what happens is, you know, there's, there's lots and lots of gods, and there's the god of the sea, and that's the, the sea god, like the sea god Tiamat that the Babylonians believed in. The Egyptians, they believed in the, in the sun god named, named Ra or, or, or Re, but they believed that everything has its own god. The river is a god, you know, the sea is a god, the moon's a god, the star is a god, the sun's a god, everything's a god. All these forces of nature, they believed, were were, were gods. And so the way they pictured the ordering of the universe was that one of these gods, who was a part of the, the universe, the material universe, came up from out of the water or descended from the star or wherever and then created, created the rest of the universe. So it's a part of the universe that somehow becomes a god and then creates the, the rest of the universe. Look carefully at what happens in Genesis, in Genesis 1, verse 3, on the first day. What's the first thing that God says? Let there be light. Where does light come from? People make a big deal. Well, the light happens on the first day, but the sun doesn't become created until the fourth day. What's the deal with that? Well, the deal is this. If there's one thing that all of the pagan nations could agree on, it's that you know, we might think, you might think that that chair is God, and I might think this microphone is God, but everybody agreed that the sun was a God. Where does light come from? Light doesn't come from the sun. Light comes from God. God allows the sun to borrow his light after he creates it so it can shine light on the earth. Look what happens in, uh, in, on, on day four, where he says, he created the sun. He created the moon. And so what Moses is doing is putting a stake in the ground in this culture war and saying, God is not, the moon is not God because God created the moon. The moon is not, the, the, the sun is not God because God created the sun. I know some of you have done the, um, the New City Catechism. Our kids have been through the New City Catechism. They've done that in Northwest Kids. Does anybody know the, the second catechism? Anybody remember what it is? It's such a great question. It says, what is God? Isn't that a good question? What, what is God? It says, God is the creator of everything and everyone. God's not a part of the material universe that becomes powerful. 
He's outside the material universe. Where is God as he's creating the sun, the moon, the stars, as he's creating the sea? Where is God in this chapter? Where do we see him? Look at verse 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God's not morphing from the sea into a God. He's not descending from the sky. He's like a, you know what this seems like? This seems like, I don't know who your favorite author is. The person who wrote your, your favorite, one of your favorite books. One of my favorite books is the Harry Potter uh, series. All of those books these days, they start with an author hovering over a blank Word document. I don't know if you like art or not, but your favorite paintings, they all started with an artist hovering over a blank canvas. That's what God is like. He's not part of the natural world. He's the creator of every part of the natural world. The third thing that we see about God, we see that God is all-powerful. So the most famous story, myth, of how the world came about, that as the Israelites, as they were living in Egypt, as they're entering into Canaan, that they probably would have heard, just like we hear about, I don't know, the, the Kardashians, or we hear about who won the Super Bowl, or it's just kind of part of the culture, right? Um, the most famous story, one of the most famous stories that all of them would have heard that they would have known was the story of Marduk and Tiamat, which is the Babylonian creation myth. This is what happens in the, in the story of Marduk and Tiamat. So Tiamat is the goddess of the sea. She's the goddess of the sea. And she gets greedy, and she wants to take over and rule and subjugate the other gods. Now our hero in the story, Marduk, he comes and he sees Tiamat, and at first he's scared and he just runs away. Right, this is true. This is not true, but this is actually written down. He, just, he sees her and he runs away. He's too scared. But he finally gets up the courage, and he slays Tiamat, and he cuts her in half, and he uses her, the top half to make the sky, and he uses her bottom half to make the, the sea and, and the dry land. So some of you have heard that before, some of you haven't, but what do we, what do we see in there? What's the message about God that we're seeing in or about the gods that they would have been internalizing through that story? How is the earth created? It's through, it's through conflict, right? You know, Marduk, he had to summon up his courage. He had to get on his horse. He had to get his sword. He had to go up to Tiamat. He had to fight and do all this type of stuff. And afterwards, he still had work to do. He had to roll up his sleeves, had to cut her in half, had to press this up against the sky. He had to, you know, press this down and kind of flatten it out and make it into the earth. That was a, it was, it was work. It was a struggle. It was conflict. What do we see in Genesis 1? Other than the fact that this is true and the Babylonian myth is, is not true, what do we see about God in contrast to that in Genesis chapter 1? How does God create? He speaks. He says, let there be light. And there's light. 
he says, let the waters separate, and they separate. He says, let dry land appear, and dry land appears. He says, let there be the sun, moon, and stars, let vegetation come up, let the animals spring forth, let, let there be man and woman, and it just happens. I, I don't think we appreciate how incredible that is. That God just, is God breaking a sweat here? Is God sore the next day? He, he just, let there be light. I can't, so this is what you have to understand. You and I have never done anything as easily as God created the universe. I can't turn the lights on as easily as God created the light. I can't just say, let there be light. I can't even, like, call my kids to say, hey, it's time for dinner. Come, come to the table. And then they come right away. Like, you know, yeah, they're looking and they're just playing and they're doing their thing. And they're completely ignoring me. I can't even call my kids to the dinner table as easily as God creates the Milky Way. He just speaks. I think that's the type of power that we have a very, very, very hard time appreciating. Let me give you an example. So a second ago, I talked about how the image that we see of God here is not God, you know, fighting against a dragon, and it's not God having to do a lot of, like, back-breaking work or something like that. The image we get of God is God like a master novelist or artist hovering over his canvas, putting his fingers on his keyboard and starting to take this blank word document and create a masterpiece on it. So I told you one of my favorite books series is the Harry Potter series. And standard disclaimer, witchcraft is bad. <laughs> I enjoy reading Harry Potter and I'm able to hold both of those together somehow. And I hope you can too. Um, but, so let me ask you a question. How many of you, how many of you have read Harry Potter before or seen the movies or something? Okay, yeah, all of you are sinners. So that was the, that was the point of that. I've never, just kidding. Okay, so um, how many of you, so if you, if, you're, if you enjoy Harry Potter, if you've read Harry Potter or watched the movies, let me ask you a question. This is like a, this is a really important Harry Potter trivia question. All right, who is the most powerful person in the Harry Potter world. Who's the most powerful person in the Harry Potter world? Harry Potter? No, that's wrong. Okay, that's the most popular wrong answer. <laughs> Anybody else? Dumbledore. Dumbledore, you know, he's, he's better at magic. He can, you know, he does all the stuff and, and, and whatever. He, he knows all about the horcruxes. Also wrong. Who's the most, Matt just said Gandalf, I think. Did you just say Gandalf? I think, I think Matt needs to get his wizards on the right page. <laughs> um, that's all wrong. Who's the most powerful person in the Harry Potter universe? J.K. Rowling. What type of power does J.K. Rowling have over the Harry Potter universe? Okay, so Dumbledore. Dumbledore is the most 
you know, he's the, the best, most wizardy wizard, and he can do all the stuff and whatever. Nobody can beat him in the, you know, in, in the Harry Potter world. Do you think that Dumbledore could beat J.K. Rowling in a fight? <laughs> do you? Do you think, okay, let's say this. Let's say Dumbledore and Harry Potter together with the whole whizzing gamut and all four houses in Hogwarts, they all get together and everybody stops playing Quidditch and instead focuses on, you know, fighting and they all get together and they unite and they try to defeat J.K. Rowling. Would they be able to do it? It's a stupid question, isn't it? It's a stupid question. Because for them to do that, J.K. Rowling would have to be like, well, one day Harry Potter, he picked up a sword that he tried to kill. Like, he, he, she would have to invent them. She would have to write them doing that in order for them to do that. That's the type of power that God has in this world. So, so often we think of God like we think of Dumbledore. He's the older, wiser, you know, maybe helpful, more powerful kind of version of us. But our relationship to God is not... Harry Potter to Dumbledore. It's Harry Potter to the creator, to the author. Well, let me ask you a question as we, as we kind of get ready to, to wrap up. We see that God, that there's one God, that God is the creator, that God is all-powerful. Let me ask you a very important question. I know some of you maybe have not been coming to church for, for very long. Maybe you're a, a Christian. Maybe you're trying to figure out what Christianity is all about. Um, maybe you're visiting. Maybe you're, yeah, maybe you have questions, whatever the case is. I want to ask you a very important question. I want you to think about this. When you think about God, what comes into your mind? What comes into your mind when you think about God? I know all of you have thought about God before. And let's be honest, we can't help but kind of imagine God as, as something right? What comes into your mind when you think about God? I think for a lot of us, when we think about God, we imagine God as kind of like a, a mentor. You know what I'm talking about? Where we sort of come to God and we say, God, here are my plans, right? We say, God, this is what I want to accomplish. Here are my plans and dreams and goals, Please help me accomplish these. I think some of us, to the extent to which we think about our relationship with God, we think about it like that. And what we have to see here is that the picture that God is painting through Moses of God in Genesis chapter 1 is radically different. That God is not just an older, stronger version of us that can help us. God's the creator. He's not just, he's not Harry Potter to Dumbledore, he's Harry Potter to J.K. Rowling. What does this mean? What does this mean for the way we interact with him? What does this mean for the way we interact with him? I mentioned um, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, a second ago. There's another place in Deuteronomy where Moses is reflecting on God as the creator 
God is all-powerful, there being one God who made all of us. And he's thinking about this. He's thinking about what does this mean for how we should respond to him? What's our relationship with God like? How should we imagine God? This is what he says in Deuteronomy 10, verse 14. He says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and earth and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. So he says, the earth belongs to God. All that is in the earth belongs to God. You and I belong to God. Think about this for a second. Who owns the Harry Potter series? J.K. Rowling. Well, God does. You know what I mean. You know, J.K. Rowling, had, she, she created the Harry Potter stories, and she has the copyright as the one who invented them, the one who created them, which means she can do with it whatever she wants. If she wants to get them turned into a movie, she can get them turned into a movie. If she wants to write another really weird kind of thing in the form of a play that nobody really understands and some people think sort of ruins the series a little bit, but it's okay. You know, she, she can do that, right? It's hers to do with whatever she wants. And that's what our relationship with God is. God created us, and so therefore, like it says in Deuteronomy 10, 14, we belong to God. We belong to God. And this is what that, this means. If we see God not just as a mentor, but instead as our creator, who's all-powerful, who's singular, who, whom we belong to, it should change the way we relate to him. Let me give you an example. So instead of saying, for example, God, here are my plans. Instead of saying, God, here are my plans. You know, help me to accomplish these things. We should say to God, God, here is my life. You gave me my hands. You gave me my body. You gave me my mind. You gave me everything that I have. Here is my life. Do with me, with my life, whatever you will. So the question I have for you is, when you think about the way you interact with God, are you more, God, here are my plans. Help me to accomplish these things that I want to accomplish. Or are you, God, here is my life. On the blank canvas of my life, paint whatever masterpiece you want to. And, and this can be subtle. For example, this can be the difference between, so I'm thinking about high school students. It can be the difference between coming to God and saying, you know, God, I, I want to make the football team. I want to make good grades. I want to, um, I want that person that I have a crush on to have a crush on me. I want to get into X, Y, or Z college. You know, God, if you could just do like one or two, I mean, not all of them would be a lot. If you could do like half of those, that would be great. It's not a bad thing to pray. But the difference between that, when we see God as creator, we start, pray, we start praying and saying, God, I give my future to you. Whatever you want to do with me, I belong to you. It's up to you. It's the difference in somebody in their career. It's the difference in saying, 
God, this is the promotion I want. I really want my practice to be successful. I really hope I can make enough money to afford X. The difference between that and then saying, God, everything I have is yours. I give you my career. I give you my life. Whatever you want to do with me, however you want to use me in this community, please do that. Thinking about for people who, who are retired, it's the difference between saying, well, God, now that I'm retired, I, I, I want golf, I want, you know, vacations, I want beach house, and, and this is how I want to spend my time. All these trips I've dreamed on going on, God, would you please help these to happen? On the other hand, saying, God, I, I don't know how much time I have left in your world. Take me and do whatever you want with however much longer you, you give me. So are you asking, are you saying, God, here are my plans? Or are you saying, God, here is my life? Now, I know many of you will hear this and think, that just sounds so oppressive. That's the reason people don't like God, right? That's the reason people are afraid of Christianity, because they just want to tell us what to do. God wants to boss us around. That seems controlling. That seems oppressive. It seems like you're going to lose your sense of, of identity, of who you are. Think about this. Does anybody know what the first New City Catechism question is? This is what it is. What is our only hope in life and death? What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but we belong, body and soul, to God. And the crazy thing is, it says, what is our only hope in life and death? Our only hope is that we belong to God? Isn't that supposed to be like a bad thing? Like, oh, I wish I could fix it, but God gave me this body, so I kind of have to do what he says. That's our only hope in life and death, is that we belong to God? If that seems confusing, then, then you don't understand who God is. Look at, look at the type of God in Genesis chapter 1. Look how committed this God is to human flourishing. Look how he arranges everything. The light, the darkness, the day, the night, the seas, the land, the sky, the plants, the fruit, the birds, the fish, the animals, human beings. Look how committed this God is to human flourishing. Everything that we need for human flourishing, God provides for us. And some of you, uh, some of you know these facts better than I do, but if we were just a little bit closer to the sun, we would burn up. If we were a little bit further away, we would freeze. For some reason, God, who's writing this story, who's painting this masterpiece, for some reason, his goal, or one of his chief goals, is human flourishing in ways that we would never be able to imagine if he hadn't put them in our hearts. And so what do you do with a God like this? A God who's all-powerful. You can't, you can't stop him any more than Harry Potter can say, you know, 
no, I don't want to play Quidditch or, or, or whatever. You can't stop him. He's all-powerful. He's the author. He's the creator. You can't go pick another God. There, there is no other God. How do you respond to this God? Maybe for some of you today, as you're praying that prayer, which is not a bad prayer, that I was talking about the God, here, here are my plans. Help me to be healthy, happy. You know, I'd really like this and this and this. As you're praying that prayer, maybe this would be what you do today. At the end of that prayer, you would add on something else, and you would say, God, but here's my life, and if, if you want to give me these things, then great, but I trust in you more than I trust in my own plans. So if you want to give me these things, then give them to me. If you don't, then give me none of them, and give me whatever you desire for me. Because God's plans are better than our plans. What if, as the band comes out on the stage, what if in 2023, what if we as a church, or you as an individual, or you as a family, offered yourself up to God as a blank canvas and saying, God, turn this into whatever you want to. Look at the masterpiece when all of creation was settled before God. God hovers over it like a great artist. And God brings out of that sunsets and tigers and Alpha Centauri and butterflies and earlobes. Look at the masterpiece that God paint, painted on that canvas. If you were to offer your life up to him, saying, God, here is my life. I wonder what type of masterpiece God would paint in your life. And if we as a church were to do that, I wonder what type of masterpiece he would turn us into right here in the triangle. Heavenly Father, we love you. We worship you. You are God and we are not God. Let your will be done in my life and the lives of everybody in our church for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.